Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby and welcome once again to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Today, capitalism without capital accumulation. Can capitalism really continue to work if we lose the focus on acquiring stuff? Perhaps because we're renting it. So the idea behind capitalism is that we are all driven to do better for ourselves. The failing of socialism, supposedly, is that whilst it would be nice to have everyone looked after, if we give too much, then there's nobody driven to succeed. So the economy stalls. Is capitalism stalling because too many people can't do better for themselves? So, Steve, uh, let's take my mum and dad as an example. You know, they saved to buy a house. Then they bought another bigger house. They did that a few times. They never got a really big house, but, you know, they did all right for themselves they mm-hmm. bought a new car every few years uh, and it seemed you know acquiring capital acquiring houses having stuff was their driving force so how important is that thinking to the economy do you think oh well it, it definitely the desire there's two elements that desire to consume and the desire to accumulate and in general the desire to, to consume is still there uh, the desire and, and, and the capability of consuming is still there. But we also have this desire to accumulate, and that really, for most of us, means accumulating financial assets. And in that case, the major financialized asset that we can actually purchase is the house. And to purchase the house, we've got to borrow money. Uh, if we borrow money and get leave it up and we can sell it for a profit, then we might put down, if we put down $100,000 of our own money and buy a house for a million and its price doubles to $2 million, then we get 10 times the capital gain and we think we're brilliant capitalists and on the whole game goes. That continues working until such time as the next person who buys a house doesn't can't, can't can contemplate borrowing as much money as we did and the whole thing falls over. And that's pretty much where we are right now because with the level of private debt that we've accumulated in most of the Western world, uh, it's simply impossible for younger people to take on that level of debt anymore. They've got us, you know, it'll take them to 65 before they're going to have enough money to buy the house of your 65 year old parents who by that stage will be dead. Mm. Um, and, and consequently the bubble uh, bursts, but accumulation stops, but those who've got themselves caught up on the whole thing uh, are now got to service the huge amount of money they've borrowed to buy these properties. And since they're doing that, uh, having accumulated, they can't afford to consume anymore. Well, and that's, I think, where, where we are right now in, in a nutshell. Yeah. My mum, by the way, she's not 65, she's 85. My dad's uh, long uh, long ago shuffled off this mortal coil. But look, they, mm. uh, they never got that increase in house prices that you talked about, though. In those days, it was all very incremental. So it was all sort of like steady she goes. And there seemed to almost be a stability around it. Well, that was actually, what, before the 80s? Yeah. Well, again, okay, I mean, they were, they were still buying after the 80s. It was also in the north of England. So, you know, the, not, not yeah. a lot moves up there. Yeah, well, that's that's again the period before Maggie Thatcher deregulated the housing market because that's looking at the UK. I mean, there's if you think I think I said the most remarkable chart in uh, can we avoid another financial crisis is the graph of uh, the 
the private debt to GDP ratio for the UK from 1880 till today. And from 1880 till 1980, it was basically flatlining at no more than 75% of GDP. When Maggie Thatcher took over, it was 55% of GDP. And then, bang, it went from 55% to 190% over the next 30 years. Now, in that period beforehand, a large part of, it, of the dynamic was that when you bought a house, almost always you were buying it through a building society. And the building societies fitted the neoclassical vision of lending, which it's you borrowed money that was saved by the people. And when they when you were using that money to buy your own house, they couldn't spend that own money. So it was a cooperative venture. Uh, but it meant that house prices weren't inflated. And therefore, across that period of time, there wasn't much capital appreciation. Now, of course, for the last 30 years, there's been nothing but capital appreciation. And now we're stuck in the aftermath where the only thing keeping the capital appreciation going is QE. So the two things that you talked about then, so we've still got that ability to buy stuff. We've still got that ability to consume. But this ability to acquire stuff uh, is not so easy. And of course, the reason we were doing it, obviously, was for security. We felt more secure. So what's how is that going to influence behavior, consumption behavior, for example? If we feel like we uh, can't acquire, well, not only do we feel like we can't acquire, we actually physically can't acquire because we don't have enough money because we've got, uh, we're we're racked in debt from our university fees, for example. So we know know we're never going to have a house. So we've thrown security uh, out of the window. We can still spend, but we've got to pay pay off our debt as well. How is this all going to change behavior how does it change this fundamental idea about how capitalism should work well what it means is people who are told you should aspire to accumulate and if you don't accumulate it's your own uh, inability uh to do that you know it's a it's a the sort of ain roundian vision of uh, of success and for that matter donald trump there we go mm. obligatory mention of donald trump donald trump vision of success you can't do it Collectively, and some individuals will be able to do it, but at collective level, the cohort we call a Generation X, whatever we call the next one coming through, will not be able to collectively do it. They're going to have less houses than their, their previous generation and so on. Uh, it has two effects. One is they themselves are in debt courtesy of things like university fees and the fact that they're working in zero contract hours and they're paying high transport costs, et cetera, et cetera. So, their consumption is low by their financial circumstances. Uh, but at the same time, the people who are trying to sell those houses for a profit also can't do it. And their money is therefore going, what, what, have they, what they've got of their income is going to service the debt. And, and this is one of the reasons that I'm very critical of the entire notion of savings at the national level, because the way savings are defined, savings is defined as not consumption. Yep. And consumption does not include what you're using to pay off your debt or service your debt. So when they talk about a high savings rate, which looks really good, what they're often talking about is the gap between income and consumption is extremely large, and that gap is being covered by financing our debt, both paying off what we can of the principal and servicing the interest. And there's no savings really going on at all. There's no increase in bank accounts. And it's also money pulled out of the economy, of course, because we're not spending it on yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, this is, again, this is the thing, but once you, and this is, again, why the neoclassicals get it wrong, because their vision is the building society type vision. When you pay your, in a building society, back in the days when your mum and dad were buying properties, um, in the building society world, if you paid your debt off, then the money inside the building society level would rise, and therefore, the people who had the accounts there could take money out or spend it and you would have more economic activity. So a decline in activity by the person who's paying their debt off was matched by a rise in activity by those who got the money paid back. And, and there's a seesaw effect. But in, in the real world, uh, where banks create money, and now the post-Maggie Thatcher world as well, where, that, where building societies are no longer the way people 
uh, buy houses. They, they buy it with bank loans instead. When you pay that bank loan off, you're actually destroying money and destroying money, taking demand out of the economy at the same time. So rather than the balancing act, it's, it's an up and down. And you go from rising up the escalator as the level of debt rises to plunging once you start having a falling level of private debt, which is where we are now. Some people, though, rent because they can get a better house than they could afford to buy. Um, you know, so we can have the same standard of living or, or even, you know, perhaps a better standard of living by renting rather than buying. And when you think about it, you know, if you accumulate that capital at the end of the day, uh, you know, you, when you die, there's not a lot you can do with that apart from pass it on to your kids. And we've talked in the past about how passing too much on to your kids uh, is, you know, if that keeps on happening from generation to generation, then that just increases the, uh, the, the income divide in a country. So that's not a good thing. So actually, could it be better that we all rent rather than own, rather than having this desire to, uh, to accumulate capital? Well, that's the basis of the German system. And um, I've forgotten who I was talking to. You think you may have mentioned it to me, but a colleague who was buying a property uh, somewhere in rural Germany and the local mayor said, no, that's the, uh, the person who's selling houses asking too high a price. We'll go and talk to him and tell him to drop his price by 20%, which is what they did. And the and the rental situation, the rental contracts in Germany normally require the uh, the tenant to supply the kitchen, not the kitchen knives and forks, the kitchen. Uh, and people, therefore, when they rent, they rent for maybe 10, 15, 20 years. They have complete effective ownership of the place. The rents are, therefore, quite low, and so are house prices. Now, the dilemma we have for the UK and all the Western countries that got caught up in housing bubbles is that even though rents don't move as much as house prices do, they have increased a fair bit. And therefore, we're paying either a large amount of money to a landlord who's levered to the hilt, or we're paying a large amount to the bank, and we're levered to the hilt. And therefore, in that situation, there's less investment, there's less, con- there's less consumption as well. Uh, there's more debt service, and consequently, you have a, a stagnant economy rather than the growing one. So we, but I mean that that situation you've described, where people are renting, sounds like uh, the in a way an ideal scenario, except for the fact, of course, you know that you do have to have controls because otherwise, yeah, it does become a you know a, a landlord's uh, and we're all you know we're all the wage serfs uh, who are paying the landlords the the exorbitant rents that they're demanding. But if you know if there's controls to stop that happening, that sounds like a good scenario, doesn't it? And it's presumably economies can continue to grow so long as we get rid of this idea you know as you say the 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 trump ideal if you haven't got property you're a failure yeah absolutely and the germans are very good at that so this is one like i'd normally say germany is trying to do things which we which can't be emulated by the rest of the world they're telling us we're running a trade surplus so should you that's mathematically impossible but it is possible for all of us to adopt something like their system for uh, tenants and landlords where tenants have extremely strong rights uh, where tenancy agreements are normally for, you know, could actually be virtually for the t- life of the tenant, uh, where you can fix the house place as you wish, even though you don't own the house, um, and where uh, the desires of, of the uh, local authorities is to keep house prices from rising so that everybody who does want to buy a house can afford to do it. But because it is so affordable to rent and it gives you more flexibility as well, most people prefer renting. And consequently, the money, if banks want to lend money to make a profit, they've got to lend it to corporations to invest. And you therefore get more productive use of the money of the economy as well. Wow, that sounds like a... And, and all we've got to do is change the regulations around how houses are rented out so it's more favourable um, for the rentor. That's, that's, that's basically the argument. But, uh, you know, uh, because there's so much political capital tied up in people making, turning houses into so-called investments, uh, the political fight against that is enormous. Right. So that 
in terms of it actually happening, I think we've got to rely upon the millennials getting to the stage where they say, we're the majority. We couldn't give a stuff about your uh, house prices. We're going to bring in laws that bring them down. If it crashes the economy, so be it. I've got a feeling that's the sort of future we face rather than a a sensible return to something like the German situation. Well, are you listening, Jeremy Corbyn? There's your <laughs> there's your manifesto for the next election, if ever there was one. Hey, look, there's another side to this as well, though. Uh, I mean, capitalism, you know, used to invest money in manufacturing. Uh, that was very easy to understand, wasn't it? You invested, you made stuff, people bought that stuff, and the world went round. Now lots of money is spent on, you know, intangible assets, you know, companies with brands, software, uh, you know, have we got a grip on how the economy is driven by things that we don't necessarily touch and see? Is that is that influencing how capitalism works? Um, it, it is to some extent, but I mean, because we have so much going into information technology. My main point about that is uh, that I think we are moving further and further to the world in which we don't need labour to produce most output. In fact, right right now. People talk about, I'm working hard, I'm working my backside off. You're working at a job, 90% of you, which produces no output. Mm. Okay. So uh, fundamentally, what you're doing is a leisure activity. This is the way that David Graeber describes it in his new book coming out in April of next year, Bullshit Jobs. He said most of us work at bullshit jobs, which don't contribute to production. In fact, they they absorb part of the surplus generated by other people doing non-bullshit jobs. And in the future, even the bullshit jobs are going to disappear because we can get the bullshit to be done by a computer quite adequately. Thanks very much. And oh, I don't the- know. I, I I don't think computers are going to be able to hold those lengthy meetings and uh, get involved in uh, in all the backbiting that goes on in big companies. My wife actually came up with the classic phrase, and I might have used this on the podcast before. Yeah. Uh, she described uh, the world of work as daycare for adults. <laughs> and, uh, I think that is pretty much what spot it is on. very She's often. Spot on. That's what it amounts to. And, you know, we've got to realize that what we're doing and start actually thinking, forget, let's, let's stop, forget about work, let's party and let the machines do the work. Um, but that the, 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 the danger is that we, since we don't even realize where the wealth comes from now, we might end up in the hunger game situation where uh, only the wealthy get a chance to party and the rest of us get shot fighting with each other. All right. Okay. Well, look, in summary today, then, you know, the idea of capitalism, this idea that we need to acquire for capitalism to work is just wrong. And we've just got to shift our attitude and it can happen. Well, another point I want to talk about at some point is how can we all accumulate financial assets at once? What is the preconditions for that being possible? And the answer of that is that the only precondition that works is the government's got to spend more than it takes back in taxation, which turns upside down people's arguments about uh, fiscal responsibility. But that's one for another discussion, I think. All right. A good one to follow up on. Okay. Steve, thank you. Welcome, mate. Yeah. like You know, when uh, you base your life on not acquiring stuff, it is a lot less stressful. But there again, uh, my wife wants a house. She doesn't want to rent because uh, she doesn't want to be subservient to the landlord, which is fair enough, isn't it? And the kids want the latest gadgets. Everyone wants stuff, um, but perhaps not as much as we used to. Next time, currencies are moving all over the place. Just look at the British pound uh, and the US dollar as well as been climbing lately. And these are established currencies with big moves. So how do you stabilize currencies? And is it a goal to aim for? Uh, we'll look at that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Mom? 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.